If you have your Bibles tonight, 2 Thessalonians chapter number 3. 2 Thessalonians 3. We're fast approaching uh, finishing. We won't do so tonight, probably next week, Lord willing. But finishing our study of this little epistle, this little letter from Paul to the believers in Thessalonica. And here in chapter 3, Paul is in the process of bringing this, his second letter to the Thessalonians to a conclusion. He's written both of these letters while stationed there in the city of Corinth, um, starting planting that church in that city. He's writing back to uh, uh, Thessalonica where he had spent a short time uh, planting a church and, and uh, discipling the believers that were there. And uh, he, he had just written a few months prior to this uh, to clear up some confusion, specifically regarding, regarding the catching away of the saints, what we refer to as the rapture, that event that really begins and starts the events of, of the last days, um, that event where Christ returns in the air and we are caught away, and he writes about all of that and the details of that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And then, of course, just a few months later, he's writing again, here in 2 Thessalonians to answer some further questions regarding whether or not that event, the event of the rapture, had taken place, when it was going to take place. And in chapter 2, Paul lays out some of the details with that. And now we get to chapter 3, and specifically the heart of chapter 3, and there is just one more issue that Paul needs to address. And this issue might not seem... Uh, doctrinally significant, um, like some of the past issues that he's dealt with, that they might seem that way. But it is something that is incredibly practical. It's right where we live. It has real-life implications on how we should, as the theme of our study, how we should live in these last days. Now, I have a little assignment for you, all right? We're going to read our text in just a moment, but here is your assignment should you choose to accept it. The assignment is, you know, I like words, all right? And there are four repeated words in this passage. And so your assignment is to see if you can, how many of those four you can identify. And the reason why that's important is those four words will kind of form the foundation of what is being communicated in this passage. So see if you can find all four. That's your assignment as we read. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, look there in verse number 6. Paul writes, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. For yourselves know... How ye ought to follow us, for we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an ensample unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat." For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ, that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. Heavenly Father, would you help us as we study your word here tonight? Would you bring it alive to our attention? Would would you help us be able to see clearly? Uh, what you have preserved for us, and what it means to us today. And may we be uh, affected, moved uh, by what we see, and that may it it have a a real-world impact on our lives. I pray that you bless this time, this message here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so how many of the four did you catch? All right, can somebody give me a key word? They're either repeated twice or three times or actually four times. What's one of them? Work. Oh, the important word of work. That one is repeated. Well, the the word work is only repeated twice, but the underlying Greek word is actually four times in this passage. So work. 
Disorderly. Disorderly is the, the next one. The only time uh, the word disorderly is used in all of the New Testament is twice here, and there's another form of it, so you could kind of say three times here. So we got work, we've got disorderly, command, the word commands, and there's going to be a command, actually two commands that we'll see. So that word is repeated two times, and depending on how you count it, three times, and then there's one more. So we had work. Disorderly, and I just heard it, the word follow, follow and command. So let's work through these four key words, all right? So first of all, we have the word work, and we're going to see the principle regarding work, the principle regarding work. And you see that? We just mentioned the word work is used in verse 10, as well as in verse 12. Uh, The word wrought is also from the same root word as work, or the same Greek word as work. As well as in verse 11, the word working is from the same word. So really four times repeated. Uh, Look there specifically in verse number 10, and we see the principle as Paul laid it out. And he's reminding them of something that he taught them when they were together. Paul says, For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work... Neither should he eat. Now notice that this idea of work is something that was commanded. There was a command to work. That's a strong word. That's a word that means to to give orders with authority. um, To give a charge. This is not a suggestion. It's a command. When Paul was there, he's reminding them, I commanded you that you needed to work. This was part of the tradition. We looked at this word back in chapter number 2 in verse 15 where, where Paul says, Brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught. And that word traditions just means the teaching. Here Paul, as an apostle of God, was receiving revelation from God. He's receiving inspiration by the Spirit. That's why we still have the words that he, that he wrote. He's receiving that from God. He's teaching The people. And so this is the doctrine of God, the teaching of God through the Apostle Paul for these believers. And he's reminding them, this is what I taught you. And I taught you specifically regarding this area of work. And these are part of the traditions that you are to hold. Paul had taught them both in in word and laying it out in in maybe a classroom style setting or a preaching style setting. But he'd also taught them with his life The value of tireless industry, the value of hard work, the value of self-sufficiency or self-support. Paul had taught them all of these things. Now, he was diligent, as we read in his epistles, he was diligent to lay out biblical doctrines. This is is what's going to happen, Uh, for example, in both of these epistles. This is what's going to happen in the future. Here are some things you need to know about eschatology, and that's more in the Maybe we could say the theoretical realm, but he was also diligent to teach the the practical, real life, uh, nitty gritty, you know, where the rubber meets the road, uh, the, the, the practical things of life. And you know what? That's a good way to evaluate the teaching that you receive. Not just in this sort of ethereal, theoretical sort of realm, though that needs to take place. We need to have some Uh, good doctrine. We need to know what the Bible says about important doctrines, but then we also need to know the connection between those important doctrines and real life. What impact does that teaching have on how we live our lives? And depending on where you're getting your teaching from, both of those ought to be present. And I hope they, they are, that you receive that kind of teaching here in our church, both the the doctrinal, this is what the Bible has to say, but then the practical, this is how it applies to your life. So there's a command, and this command is extremely uh, practical, it's extremely real life. That That command is this, you ought to work, work. So there's the command to work, there's also the will to work. He says in verse 10, for even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work. Would, there's that word would, it means to wish or to want, to have a desire and then fulfilling that desire. 
You see, working is not just something that happens. Working is an act of the will. You don't just wake up one day and say, you know what, today I just, you know, I just feel like working. And from here on out, you're a hard worker. Maybe perhaps some of you young people think that. Well, one day I'm just going to become an adult and, and I'll be, I'll just sort of magically transform into a good worker. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't happen that way. There, there, there is an act of the will that must take place. This is what God wants. And so therefore, I am going to do it. I, I will do it. It's a choice that you have to make. Now, this work you know, doesn't have to necessarily be physical work, although that's the primary emphasis, but it can also be in the realm of spiritual labor and spiritual work as well. Have you noticed in life that nothing of any value is sort of brought to pass, and that's that, this idea of, of work without some labor and some, some hard work? It's necessary. We'll get to that in just a moment. I'm getting ahead of myself in just a little bit. Um, But this idea of working is not something that just happens to you. It's something that you have to understand. We we dealt with this principle in Sunday school this morning. Proverbs 15, 19, you remember that verse? Uh, The way of the slothful is a hedge of thorns. The idea is this, when we choose the easy way, when we don't have the will to work, when we haven't made the choice to work, when we choose the easy way, what we get is actually... Difficulty. Choosing the easy way actually makes things hard. It's the reality. It's the way things are. So there needs to be a will to work where we say, this is what I'm going to do, a choice of the will. And that leads to the significance of work. This idea of of work, what what are we talking about here? Well, the word work means to produce something. It means to bring something of value to pass. It means to accomplish something. Now, again, as we mentioned, this could be in the physical realm. It also can be just as applicable in the the spiritual realm. Because, as we just noted, there's nothing of any sort of value or importance or significance that is accomplished without work. Whether that's in, in, in your schooling, nothing of any value is learned or accomplished in, in school unless you apply yourself and put a little bit of work into it. Whether that is on the job, that nothing of any value is accomplished unless you put some work into it, unless you put some effort into it, there's no promotion, there's no success in, that, in, the, in, the, in the job that you have and the work that you have unless you put some work in it or into it. This is true in the home. Nothing of any value can be accomplished unless you put some work into it. And let me encourage you, young parents, you have young children at home, and it's a lot of work. And the temptation is to to think, oh, this is just too hard, it's it's too much work, and to, to slack off from what you know God wants you to do, from the attention that God wants you to give, from the discipline that God wants you to apply in your children's lives. It can be tempting to say, you know, it's just too much hard work. But don't forget, nothing of any value is accomplished without that hard work. You got to put the time in. You got to put the labor in. Because eventually you're going to reap what you sow. The same is true in our church. There are things spiritually that need to be accomplished for the kingdom of God, for the glorification of Jesus Christ. And those things aren't going to happen without some work, without some labor, without some difficulty, without some diligence, without God's people saying, this is of value, this is worth it, I'm going to put some work into it. I fear too many people, it's like, if it inconveniences them in any sort of way, if it kind of, you know, cramps their style in any sort of way, you know, that's just too hard. Does it have some value? Does God want you to do it? If the answer is yes to both of those questions, then it is worth the labor and the work that you put in. The same is true in our inner man. The work that the Holy Spirit wants to do in the lives of all believers. Those bad habits. Those coping mechanisms. 
those bad attitudes, uh, um, those interpersonal issues that the Spirit wants to deal with, those aren't going to magically disappear on their own. They're not just going to dissolve into thin air. There's some work that goes into it. Now, we understand as believers that God does give us the will. He works in our hearts both to will and to do of His good pleasure. So He gives us the, the desire and the power to accomplish that spiritual work in our lives. But it still requires diligent effort and perseverance on our part. I like the way Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 3.9 where he just simply says, we are laborers together with God. We're working together with God. Now, he's got the strength, he's got the power, he's got the ability, but we still have, we, we, we still have to choose to get in the yoke, you know what a yoke is, right, between two oxen, all right, and it's, this, it's a sharing of the load as they go in the same direction. We've got to make the choice to get into the yoke with Christ. Now, his yoke is easy. His burden is light. Well, we're thankful for that. He does all, not all of it, but he does most of the pushing. But we've got to be willing to put some of that effort in. We're laborers together with God. Amen. And so there's some significance to this idea of work. And thankfully, in verse 10, there's also some fruit of work. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. There's eating that comes as a result of working. Did you enjoy any eating this, this weekend? Thanksgiving, all right? Enjoy some good food, and God made all of that, all right? He made food to be enjoyable, to, to eat. But the principle is this, that production comes before consumption. Diligence comes before enjoyment. Labor comes before rest. We've got to get things in the, the right order. And so God lays out a plan for our basic needs to be met. Right, how do I get the, the needs in my life? How do, how do I get those things met? God has a plan. The plan is called work. And so, a true believer really shouldn't be satisfied having their basic needs provided in any other way. Now, I want to be careful in how they say this. I don't want to be offensive tonight. But there is a truth here. That living off of others, living off of the government, taking advantage of the generosity of other people, all those different things, that, that ought not to be an acceptable, permanent solution to meeting your needs as a believer. God has given us a plan for those basic needs to be met. That plan is work. Now, there may be a temporary exception to that, you know, a temporary difficulty that you might go through or a situation where you're unable to work. So there may be some exceptions to this, but the basic principle remains that the way that God has ordained for your basic needs to be met, for my basic needs to be met, is that we work. Work comes first. Eating, the fruit of that work, comes, section, comes uh, second. Production comes before consumption. That's God's plan. You know, in the spiritual realm, this is also true. As believers, we should not be content to live off of the spiritual sacrifices of other people. This can be very easy in a big church. There's a lot of stuff. And it's great things that we enjoy, that we like. We ought not to be content to just live off the spiritual labor and efforts of others. As believers, we enjoy you know, hearing about how people are being reached with the gospel, perhaps around the world, perhaps even in our own area. We love to hear about you know, so-and-so witnessing, and they got, a, they got an opportunity to preach the gospel, and we like that. We like to be a part of a church that's involved in outreach. But are you involved in outreach? Are you doing your part? Because it can be tempting to just live off of the, the spiritual labor of other people. Like, yeah, I'm a part of a church that's really involved in outreach. That's great, but are you doing any of it? 
Do you have a role to play? And that's just one example, but there's other examples as well. Whether that is, you know, programs for your children or different activities or things like that. All of those take labor and effort to put on. Are you participating in that labor and effort? A believer is not just content to sit back and allow everyone else to do the labor while they just sit in the pew as a consumer. It's not helpful if you do that because we're going to see in just a second, if you sit back and you're just a consumer, it's going to lead to something. And from my experience in watching, often this leads to just a bitter, miserable life where you just kind of sit back and got your arms folded and I don't like this, I don't like this, they're not doing that, and on and on it goes. And and you're kind of a miserable person. It's those that are laboring who are putting their hand to the plow, who are, who are working, that are really enjoying the fruits of that labor. It's really for our own benefit that God commands us these things. And so we should not be content in the physical realm living off of the work of others, and we should not be content in a spiritual realm living off the work of others. And so this is the principle regarding work. The principle is simply that if any man does not work, Neither should he eat. So work was our first key word. The second key word was that word disorderly. And we note here the problem with the disorderly. Look there in verse 11. Paul says, For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now that word disorderly is repeated a couple times. And you might kind of scratch your head like, what, what is Paul referring to? Well, this is the verse here that clearly spells it out. This is what Paul means by that word disorderly. A disorderly person is someone who is not working, but instead they are busybodies. Uh, there's a little bit more explanation back in verse number 6, where we're told that here in this church there were some, there were some brothers that were walking disorderly and not after the tradition which they received of us. Now we think about this this issue of work and how this is God's plan for meeting our needs. And we could say, we look around at the world around us and in our country, we would say, you know what? If this principle was taught and practiced, a lot of our problems would go away. We would say amen to that. I mean, we could see if, how, if everyone else practiced this principle, then things would be better. And that is certainly true. But not only was it not being practiced out in the world, it also wasn't being practiced in God's house. Because these individuals were among them. Not just those on the outside or in the outside world, but those that were in the church. Verse 6, it specifically describes it as a brother that walketh disorderly. This was someone who claimed to be saved. This was someone who said, I am a believer, I am a true born-again Christian, but yet they had a pattern of living that was wrong. They were walking in a way that was contrary to how they had been taught. This was in this particular church. So we know what was happening in this church, and that was disorder. I already mentioned this, but the word disorderly is only used two times in the New Testament right here in this chapter. And the word in verse 7 is just a slightly different form of the same word. And that's the only time that word is used. So really three times, these are the only places where it's used. But the word disorder speaks of soldiers who are walking out of order or quitting the ranks. You've seen soldiers that are given an order in which they are to march, which they are to proceed. There's a specific line and and where they're supposed to stand, specific places they're supposed to stand and who they're supposed to stand with, who they're supposed to march with. And this idea of walking disorderly is the soldier who just decides, ah, this is too much. I I quit. I I don't want to do this anymore. Uh, It's too hard. It's too difficult. The idea that's tagged with this of walking out of order is the idea of, of slackness, of laziness, where it's like, that's too difficult, it's too hard, and so therefore, I'm not going to do it anymore. It has the idea of someone who neglects their duty, someone who is irresponsible or undisciplined. One of the other definitions, and this was rather telling, 
The word disorderly means irregular and inordinate, immoderate pleasures. So we're getting the picture here of individuals who live in a way that is sloppy, that is fleshly, that is disorderly. That what was, that's what was happening here in, in this church. These kind of things sometimes happen in a church because a church is filled with real people and real sinners and they have issues. Though we've been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, we have things that, that uh, need some attention. And in this case, there were those who decided out of their own laziness and slackness, they decided that they were not going to do that which they were taught to do. So the problem was disorder. That's what was happening. What was lacking there in, in uh, uh, verse number 12 specifically, they were working not at all. There was no work going on. They were simply idle. It seems as though we, we draw the conclusion that there were some in the church who decided that they were going to quit their jobs. They were going to liquidate all of their assets, all the things that they had, so that they could be more ready for the return of Jesus. They heard the teaching that Jesus is coming soon. His return is imminent. It could happen anytime, at any moment. We don't know when. God hasn't chosen us, chosen to tell us when. And so we're told to be ready. So they said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to quit it all, sell it all, so I can be ready. And there they were. I'm ready. Let's go. Now what? It didn't happen right away. Now what? Well, in the meantime, they got to a place where they were content to live off of, to eat off of the labors of other people. And boy, this kind of came alive to me as I was thinking about this. This idea of, I want to be Ready for the return of Christ. It sounds really spiritual. Like, wow, he's, he really believes this. Jesus could come at any moment. So he, boy, he must be more spiritual than I am. It sounds so spiritual, but it quickly descended into a fleshly way of living. Albeit with kind of a spiritual label attached to the outside. There was a spiritual justification for a selfish pursuit. Did we not hear about this, that this morning with the idea of the proof text? Where we already have in our minds, this is what I want. This is what I like. This is what I prefer. Okay, now let me, let me see if I can find a, a spiritual label to slap on it so I can, I can preach and say this is what everyone should do. But the real reason you're doing it is because you want to do it has nothing to do with the spiritual label. We've got to be really careful about putting God's stamp of approval and God's authority on everything that we like and everything that we want. You get the idea, and, and from the, the meaning of this term, disorderly, is that we, had a, we have a group of people who didn't really enjoy the idea of working in the first place, and the spiritual label was a convenient excuse to, to not do that which they didn't want to do. And we have to be so incredibly careful of this. Where there, we, we have our minds made up, this is what I want to do, and so let me find a spiritual justification of why you know, God told me to do that which conveniently I want to do. Or God told me not to do, that I don't have to do that which... I don't like to do. We need to be really careful. And that's what was happening. What was lacking is these believers were working not at all. And then that led to that which was resulting. And now what? What are you going to do? Well, you slide into this idea of being a busybody. Now, specifically what's here at the end of verse number 11, the idea of working not at all but are busybodies, this doesn't necessarily translate, and I'm, I'm trusting um, those who know Greek who write about this, but specifically, this is a Greek pun or a play on words. So some of you who really like puns 
and like play, uh, play on words, you know, the dad jokes and all of that, all right? You know, Paul liked a good pun or a good play on words. So, so there's your justification. There's your proof text on that. Um, so if you really want to use puns, you can say, point back to this. But the, the pun, the play on words was this, that these individuals were not busied in their own business, but instead were over busied in the business of others. Just to kind of give a little bit of correlation in English to uh, the play on words that's there. So they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, which led them doing too much of what they were not supposed to be doing. This idea of busy bodies, that word means to, to busy oneself about trifling and needless and useless matters. It leads to the meddling in the affairs of others. Not doing anything of their own, the only thing left to do was to opine on the things that other people were doing. Because there wasn't anything to do. We might use the phrase, you know, they had a little too much time on their hands. Have you ever heard that before? Or, you know, idle hands or or idle minds or the devil's workshop. The only thing left was to sit around and look at all the believers in the church and say, I don't know. I don't know if I like what she's doing over there. I don't think what he's doing is right. I don't approve of the way they're living. That's probably not right. I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't like that. And all of a sudden, boy, you get really worked up in what everybody else is doing because you're not doing anything at all. That's the idea that's here. Their lack of physical labor also then led to a lack of spiritual labor as well. And here's why I say that. Because as believers, if we're walking with God, if we're following the Spirit's leadership in our own lives, do you know there's something that we're going to have a good understanding of? We're going to have a real good understanding of our own deficiencies. We're going to have a real good understanding of the areas that still need to be worked on so that we become more like Christ. And when we have a good understanding of our own deficiencies, it doesn't leave a lot of room to catalog the the, the deficiencies of everyone else. You know what I'm saying? There's not much space left in our lives because we've got some work to do. We've got some things that, that need attention. There's not a lot of space for me to be worried about, you know, what's going on in your life and how you're not doing what you're supposed to do and and how I disapprove of your decision and your choice and how I don't like this and I don't like that. There's not as much room for that. That that doesn't mean that you can't exercise discernment and you can't say, well, I'm not going to choose to live in that sort of way that I might see being demonstrated around me. That doesn't mean we don't have discernment, but it does mean that we are busy We have the attitude of, I've got enough problems on my own to work on, let alone trying to work on everyone else's problems and fix everyone else. Being busied, this idea of busybody, being busied with the failings of others is very deceptive because then it steals time. It takes away time from the work that needs to be done on myself. Which is why it's so dangerous. And so you have those that have quit the plan that God has foreordained for our needs to be met. That is work. They've got nothing else to do. And so they move into this realm. They also lose sight of what needs to be done in themselves. They move into this realm where now they're just a bunch of busybodies worrying themselves with the problems and issues of other people when there's more than enough on the inside to deal with. This is the problem with the disorderly. This is something that we have to be careful about, that we have to watch out for. So, work, disorderly. The third word is the word follow. And in verses 7 through 9, there is specifically a pattern to follow. Look there in verse 7. For yourselves know how ye ought to follow us, for we behaved not ourselves disorderly among you, He says, you know how you ought to follow us. That word follow means to to mimic, to to imitate, all right, to follow a specific pattern. And Paul is saying at the end of verse 7, we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. We did not allow 
a spiritual pursuit when we were with you. We didn't allow that to be a cover for fleshly living. Remember how we acted, how how we displayed ourselves when we were with you. And so he also reminds them of some of the particulars of the pattern. In verse 8, he says, Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought, as that word work, wrought with labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you. He says, we didn't eat for naught. And the idea is we didn't eat for nothing or we didn't eat freely or undeservedly. We didn't live off of the fruits of other people's labors. We didn't, even in a spiritual sense, live off the spiritual labors of others. But specifically, we wrought. We worked. And the work that's described is not like, you know, just sort of punching the clock and putting in your time. No, the work that's described, he uses the word labor. We worked with labor. And labor has the idea of of taking a beating. It's intense work. It's work with trouble and toil. He said we worked with labor. We worked with travail. And it's a, a similar word, but difficult, strenuous labor. Exertion of energy and effort. Labor and travail. You've heard those words before. Both of those words, labor and travail, closely tied with childbirth and the difficulties of child. Just to kind of get an idea of what Paul is talking about. I have, I've yet to meet any ladies who would say, oh yeah, it was no big deal. It was easy. No problem. Could have done it in my sleep. Wasn't even hard. Didn't even break a sweat. I mean, it was just simple. Now, I don't know because God has not deemed me worthy of that kind of pain, all right? That kind of work. I'll never know for certain. So, lady, I, I don't know. I, what I've been told, though, and what I've seen is it's rather difficult. There's a lot that goes into it. And Paul uses those words to describe <clears throat> his work in the city of Thessalonica. And he said this work was night and day. It was continuous. It never ended. He's laboring there. So that, specifically, that we would not be chargeable to any of you. And the idea of being chargeable is to be a burden. So He said, we didn't want to be a burden, and so we, we worked. And specifically, I think he's referring to both realms. We had to work physically to support ourselves so that we could do more work spiritually and help and teach and guide and and disciple you. There's work on both sides. Now, Paul is doing the same exact thing. He's writing this letter from the city of Corinth. Remember that? In Corinth, in Acts chapter 18, uh, it's described to us how as soon as he went to, to Corinth, he... He found Aquila and Priscilla and lived with them, abode with them because they were of the same craft. They had the same occupation. And specifically, it says they wrought. They worked together for by their occupation, they were tent makers. Acts 18 and verse number three. And so when Paul got to Corinth, he needed some money to pay the bills. He needed some money to put food on the table. And so he knew apparently how to, to make tents and found some other people in the city who did the same thing. and said, let's work together. Let's make some tents. Let's uh, earn some money so we can put food on the table so we can pay the bills. And so he did that so that he would have enough time to spiritually work among the Corinthians, to labor among them, to teach them, to disciple them, to do the spiritual work that was necessary. And so this was a, a pattern of the Apostle Paul, and he's reminding them, remember, remember what it was like when I was there. This was the pattern that I laid out. So those are some particulars of the pattern. But he also deals with the paradox of the pattern. What is this paradox? In verse 9, he says, I didn't do any of these things because we have not power. Now, what does that mean? Not because we have not power. That word power is translated 29 times as the word authority. Twice as the word right. Once as the, the word jurisdiction. So the idea is, Paul is saying, we had a right We had the authority, we had the power for you all who were receiving God's word from us. We had the right to be supported by you, yet we chose not to do that. 
We chose not to operate in that sort of way. Paul was very clear on two different occasions, 1 Timothy chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He quotes from Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, clearly teaching that those who work and labor in the ministry ought to be supported financially. You can go back and read those for yourselves. We don't have time to go there. Uh, in 1 Timothy, he specifically says that those who labor in the, in the word and in the ministry are worthy of double honor. That sort of respect. The uh, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treads the corn is the principle from Deuteronomy chapter 25. And so that was true. But Paul said, I laid aside that right, demanding that right, that authority, so that I could fulfill the purpose of the pattern, which was to be an example to you, to show you what it's like and what it ought to be like to live a life pursuing after this idea of work, to take care of those financial needs. So that was the pattern to follow. There's a fourth word, the last word here tonight, and that was the word command. And specifically, there is a prescription that was command or commanded. Paul gives two commands in the passage, one in verse 6 and one in verse 12. Both of these commands carry great significance and weight because both of these commands, specifically he says, he commands them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is weighty, it's significant, it's important. All right, so what is the prescription of the command? Well, the first command is to withdraw. Verse 6, now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which ye have received of us. Now we're going to talk more about this next week, um, just because we didn't have enough time to deal with it all tonight. But this is a corporate, a plural command. He uses the word ye in verse 6, that ye withdraw yourselves. So there's there is a, it's a plural command with individual responsibility. But the idea of withdrawing is avoiding. It's keeping away from. It's abstaining uh, from close association. And I want to remind you that specifically those that he's talking about, specifically withdrawing from, are those who, yes, they claim to be a brother, but they've been taught. They know how they're supposed to live. They had received that tradition, but yet they specifically chose a pattern of living. They chose a lifestyle that was contrary to how they had been taught. They had made a willful choice. And this was not necessarily, you know, we all have failings. We all have weaknesses. This is not just, you know, I failed in this area or I'm weak in this area, but it was a specific willful choice. This is how I'm going to live my life. So let's make sure we understand the, the context of this. But specifically, Paul tells these believers, you should avoid close association with that individual. And of course, we've seen, we, we, we see a scriptural principle all throughout the Bible. And the principle is we do have to be careful about our associations. In Bible class and in EBA this week, we were talking about friendships and how they had boiled it down in, in our curriculum to three different uh, uh, levels of friendships. There's probably more, but three basic levels, the idea of acquaintances, the idea of um, like generic friends as far as knowing people, casual friends, and then there are close friends. And we were talking about how really as, as believers, we have to be really careful who we allow into that, that, uh, that area of close friends. Now, we ought to be a good acquaintance, and we were talking about how to do that, how to smile and be friendly, and that's how we make acquaintances, and we, we gather casual friends. And of course, as a believer, casual friends give us opportunity to invest the gospel, and we ought to look, to look at building those kind of relationships with those who are around us. But we ought to be really careful who we allow in to be that close friend. Because our close friends have a great impact on our lives. We are influenced. And not just young people and teenagers, but as adults, we are influenced. And we need to be careful. And so Paul says you need to withdraw. We're commanding you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you withdraw. 
This is not an isolated command. Romans 16 and verse 17 says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. That doesn't mean be unkind. It doesn't mean be mean. It doesn't mean treat them like they have some sort of disease. But be careful about allowing them into that arena of close friendship. Avoid them. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 33 Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. You will be affected by those who you choose to have close relationships with. It will happen. You will not be the exception. No matter how strong you think you are, you won't be the exception. you got to be careful. And so the first command is to withdraw. The second command, and that that first command is specifically directed to those that he's writing to, the second command is directed to those who he's really pointing out the failings, those who had chosen to walk away from work and now had gotten involved in being a busybody. And the command to them was simply work. Hey, it's time to get busy. Verse 12. Now them that are such we command. And notice this is interesting. He adds the word exhort. We command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ, that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. The idea of exhorting is, is it's a command, but then it's also someone who says, come alongside, all right? I'm, I'm exhorting you. I'm urging you. I'm calling you near. Let's go to work together is the idea. And so this is a very gentle encouragement of the Apostle Paul. Now, I'll point out that this is kind of Paul's final warning. He had dealt with this back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, verse 11. uh, He he wrote that that you study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. And so he kind of of, uh, addressed the issue a little bit in 1 Thessalonians. Now he's really laying it out, being very explicit here. And you'll notice that he'll follow it up in verse 14 when he says, If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company. All right. So this is kind of Paul's final word. And he's telling everyone else, hey, if they don't receive this, then you're going to have to take the next step. And we'll talk about that next week corporately. Um, But he's laying out the fact that greater consequences are coming. But this idea of work has three basic um, action words that are associated with it. The first word is the word, oh, I forgot to put it on there, but the word quietness, right? In verse 12, that with quietness they work. Think about this now. This is kind of a neat truth. Quietness is the state of undisturbed calm and rest. It's It's the contrary word. It's the antithesis of this busybody. So just worked up and concerned about how everybody is not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And it's like the blood pressure is raising, raising, raising. What am I going to do? All right, with quietness. Do you know that we can give other believers, and yes, maybe even other believers in our church, we can give those believers, those who maybe we see and we look at how they're acting and what they're doing, and we say, that's not right. It's wrong. I disagree with how they're living. Do you know that we can give those individuals to God, our Father and their Father? We could say, look, I don't agree with this. I don't think it's right. I think there's going to be consequences with this, but they're your child. Let me pray for them. God, would you would you help them? Would you lead them? Would you guide them perhaps to the proper conclusion? Would you help them to see? Perhaps they they don't understand. They, They don't get it yet. Would you help them to get it? You can take those people and you can give them to God. And you ought to be doing that, by the way. If you don't, this idea of quietness is not going to be a part of your life. You'll take on the stress of everyone else and making everyone else's decisions for them. So with quietness. With quietness, then work. Go about your labor. Pursue accomplishing something. Pursue after bringing something of value to pass. Now this is not just, you know, building something. It's not just earning a paycheck. 
It, it also involves spiritually bringing something good to pass in the life of someone else, serving someone else. Work, all right? Have that state of undisturbed calm and rest, and then work, labor, put some effort into it, put some diligence into accomplishing something that you know God wants you to accomplish. And then, third, quietness, work, then eat. The idea of eating, and specifically eating your own bread, enjoy the fruits of your own efforts. Don't just live off of the efforts of everyone else. Don't just be content to, to live off the financial provisions of, of other people. Don't be content to live off of the spiritual provisions of other people. But instead, enjoy the fruits of your own efforts and your own labors. And so tonight, are you working? This is God's plan. And really, there are two choices, right? There is work. And there is disorder. Really, it's one or the other. Are you working? Are you laboring? Or are you instead walking disorderly? Using a spiritual label or a spiritual excuse to paper over, to cover over fleshly living. Now, I can't necessarily look at your life and tell you that that indeed is taking place. This is between you and God. Whether or not those things that you choose to do and you kind of slap that godly label on the outside are truly what God wants for you. Or whether or not it's just an excuse to do what you want. This is between you and God. But are there areas of spiritual labor and spiritual service that you've walked away from that you're neglecting? Perhaps because, you know, it was just too hard. It's too difficult. It's too tiring. And there's some areas where God wants you to be involved and instead you've chosen to be spiritually idle and allowing other, everyone else to do the labor and you just sort of live off of the, the spiritual high that other people provide. That's not how God intended. In a physical sense and in a spiritual sense, are you content living off of the sacrifices and labors of others. If you are, then the natural results that come from it is the idea of not being satisfied. Yeah, you'll eat of the fruit. It'll kind of give you what you need to get by, but you're not going to be satisfied. You're not going to be fulfilled. And the reason is you're not following God's plan for the provision of those needs. God knew what he was doing when he commanded us to do these things. God knew what he was doing when he laid all of this out. It's really just, you know, mankind, human beings discover, hey, you know what? People really should work. <laughs> it's really good for people to work and not just, you know, to sit around and pursue after the arts with their spare time. It doesn't work that way. It might be nice, but it just doesn't work that way. God knows how we work. God knows how we tick. God knows what we need. In a physical sense, we need to work. In a spiritual sense, we need to work and enjoy the fruits of our labor. That is God's plan.